Well, good morning, church. How are you today? <clears throat> All right. That, I mean, I won't say that was convincing, but I'll say fine. I'll say fine to that. Uh, my name is Darren, and I'm one of the shepherds on staff. I want to give you a welcome this morning, whether you're part of the family around here or a guest. Uh, we're hoping nobody stays a guest very long. We're hoping that the transition from guest to family is something you're in process of. We uh, but the best part about being church is being family, so I hope you're on the trajectory towards familyhood, whatever that means, and uh, we're going to dive in. We've been in a, in a study in the Gospel of John, an ongoing study that we're continuing here in uh, John chapter 9, and what's interesting about John chapter 9 in its entirety, and you, you've probably noticed we read the whole chapter this morning, uh, there wasn't a, a great way to sort of summarize that without leaving stuff out that I felt like was important to the narrative. John 9 is essentially um, an affirmation of everything Jesus promised in John 8. So if you were with us last week, we saw Jesus make some pretty cool promises. He, he promised to be the light of the world. He says, I'm the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light, right? We'll have light. So he promises to be light. He promises to be liberty. He promises to give life. So, right? Freedom from enslavement to sin and freedom from death to life, right? Light, liberty, and life was the deal last week. And then this week in John 9, we see this clear picture um, through the healing of a man who was blind from the time he was born of Jesus literally bringing illumination to someone who was in the darkness. There's a physical representation of what he had promised spiritually in the previous chapter through the healing of this man born blind. And I love this chapter because it would make a perfect like half hour TV sitcom, you know, like it would be a perfect like encapsulation. There's heroes and villains, there's a little bit of family drama, there's miracles, there's, uh, there, there's actually even some pretty decent humor in this text, right? I like the, there's kind of, there's a couple of good places to laugh in the process. It would make a really good sort of uh, short film. But what's interesting about the text is that while we see a man who was blind at the beginning of the chapter, given his sight by Jesus, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, what we'll find is that there are still a whole lot of people in the story who were blind. Because the story doesn't just point out to us the physical blindness of this one man and his healing, it also highlights for us the spiritual blindness of almost everybody else in the story. So there is blindness, recurring blindness that comes through. In fact, um, I'm not even going to highlight all of the places we see blindness in the text, but I'm going to give you seven of those as we walk through. And I know last week there was like this really short and simple alliteration. I made that really easy for you. No alliteration this week. You're going to have to work harder for it, right? But as we walk through, we're going to see blindness rear its head in a lot of places. It's essentially a chapter about blindness and what blindness does to us, what it blinds us from and what it blinds us to. So let's look at it as we begin because we see, uh, we see one of these forms of blindness right here at the very beginning. It says, as he passed by, that's speaking of Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is the only place uh, here in the Gospel of John where we see someone who's blind as a result of a birth defect. This is something that has been his, uh, his constant condition, not something that, that, uh, that sort of happened to him later in life. A man born blind from birth, and it says in two, his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's an interesting question that they ask. They see a man who's been blind for his entire life, sitting by the side of the road, and they ask a question about how this happened. Why is this man blind? Is it that he did something bad, or is it that his parents did something bad? 
we have a tendency, don't we, to pass sort of these snap judgments. When we see people in pain, or we see people suffering, or we see people in the midst of difficult circumstances, instead of looking at their suffering, and instead of looking at their pain, or looking at the ways in which we could come alongside them and provide relief, sometimes we look at them and we see a theological conundrum, if you will, right? We look at the suffering of others and we go, well, this stirs me to some interesting speculation, right? We find ourselves blinded by a judgmentalism. Now, for the disciples, their judgmentalism was rooted in sort of a rabbinical discussion or an argument, if you will, about whether or not sickness like this or infirmity like this came from the sins of the the child in utero, right? Because there were some rabbis who believed that a child could sin in utero and as a result it would be born with disabilities, or was it a result of the parents' sin? Did they do something wrong that caused them to have a child born born blind? But there was no question in their mind about whether or not it was a result of one of those two things. It's either his fault or his parents' fault. And while we would say broadly that all of the pain and the suffering and the difficulty that we see in the world is the result of the fallenness of the world in which we live, we certainly would not affirm today that the Bible teaches that all brokenness and all disability and all suffering is the result of that individual sin or the sin of his parents. Jesus confirms that as well, that in this particular case, that isn't what happened at all. They fall into a debate that they sort of had questions about before, but because of that, because they're blind by their judgmentalism here, they miss the opportunity to see the potential for God. And we fall into these snap judgments, don't we? I I remember um, being at a flag football game with my kids when they were really little. When we were living in Long Beach, uh, Jack and Hank, my older sons, were playing flag football, and so we're at the park there, and uh, we're waiting for the flag football game to start. And one of the coaches for the team in the game before our game, we're sitting on a blanket waiting for our, our game to start. One of the coaches was an amputee. It was a guy who had had his leg amputated below the knee, and he had a prosthetic leg, but it was one of those really cool, like, metal blades. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the, it's kind of just, it's like a spring blade. And there, the technology on that's amazing. But as we're watching the game, you know, one of the coaches has this prosthetic, and uh, I look over and I see my son, Hank, who's just a little guy at the time, and he looks like, he's looking, he's staring at the man's leg like this. And I remember thinking like, oh, this isn't going to turn out good. I don't know if you have a, if you have a kid like Hank, but I do. And, uh, and I kind of thought, this is not going to be great for us. Like, I don't, I don't want my kid to say something uncomfortable. I don't want him to say something awkward. I don't want him to embarrass us. I don't want him to draw attention to this man's disability. Like, I just would rather this, like, not be a thing. So I'm like, Hank, buddy, watch the football game. And he, he's, like, undistracted, right? He's just staring at the man's leg. And I'm thinking, what is he going to, please don't say anything. And he, I, all of a sudden, he's going, hey. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Look at that. You know what I'm like? Yeah, I saw it. I saw it. I know. I know. I get it, man. But let's just watch the football game. Is that cool? And he's like, Dad, look at his leg. You know, I'm like, yeah, I, I did. I see it. It's, a, it's, it's really interesting. And he goes, Dad, that man is part robot. And I'm like, oh, and he goes, imagine how high he can jump, right? And I thought, okay, I like this. I like the fact that instead of my little guy, my son, looking at a man with a disability and thinking all kinds of terrible thoughts about him or saying something that would humiliate me or our family, instead he's looking and he's thinking in some ways like, man, I wish I was that guy. Like, why aren't my legs robot legs? What do I got to do to get there, right? He looked at the man and he saw potential, And it's interesting for us because the disciples of Jesus look at Jesus and they say, Rabbi, clear it up for us. Is this guy blind because of his own wickedness or the wickedness of his parents? And look at Jesus' response. Jesus answers in verse 3, 
It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus makes a statement here about the economy of the kingdom of God that we do not want to miss. In their blindness, they're only thinking about this man's wickedness or or his parents' wickedness. Jesus says, in this case, it's neither of those things. Now, we would affirm that there are temporal consequences to sin, that there are times in our lives where the, diff- the difficulty and the suffering and the hardship in our life is a direct result of our mistakes and our failure and our sins. Certainly in my own life, there have been times where difficult things are happening and I have to go, yeah, this is happening because I was stupid, right? I made a bad choice. I made a selfish choice. I made a wrong choice. And the suffering in my life is the result of my own choices, the result of my own sin. There are times when that is the case. There are also times in my life when the suffering and the difficulty and the pain is the result of somebody else's choices. And I can point directly to that and say some of the difficulty that my mom went through and some of the difficulty that my brother and I went through was because of my father's bad choice, right? When he left our family. That was because of his choices. My family was affected. Sometimes suffering and pain is the result of my choices. Sometimes it is the result of other people's choices. Sometimes suffering and pain is the result of living in a broken and fallen world. We live in a place that is broken. Jesus will come back and he will restore and redeem and put everything right. But right now in the time period in which we live, there is suffering and pain and difficulty because it is a broken place. But Jesus here gives a fourth option. He's not talking about the fallenness of the world. He's not talking about the man's sin or his parents' sin. What Jesus says is, this man's blindness, and he was blind from birth, happens so that the works of God could be on display. Now, you need to stop and just let that settle in. Because essentially what he's saying is that this man has been blind from the time he was born so that God could be glorified. So that God could be glorified in him. Now, that that probably makes your heart feel a little funny, doesn't it? You go, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like that economy. That there are people who can be dealing with disabilities, who can be dealing with suffering, who can be dealing with pain, not because of something they did, not because of something somebody else did, not because we just live in a wrecked world, but because God was creating an opportunity to show himself strong. And the reason why your heart starts to kind of rise up against that is that you go, you know what, I care more about this man's ability to see than I do about the glory of God. I want this guy to be able to see a sunset, and I want him to see a sunrise. I want him to be able to see the faces of his children. I want him to be able to see a delicious meal or whatever. And the fact that God has withheld that from him for his own glory seems not great because I don't think God's glory is worth as much as this man's sight. Jesus is making a statement about the economy of the kingdom of God that you want to wrap your brain around this morning, and it's this. If we don't value the glory of God more than our lives, more than our pleasure, more than our peace, if we don't value the glory of God more than our absence of suffering, we'll be troubled through the entirety of our life. Because in the economy of the kingdom of God, nothing is more important than his glory. And there are times, there are times where the suffering and the pain that's occurring in our lives is not the result of our actions or someone else's, but that God has orchestrated events in his sovereignty to show himself glorious. We can't always look at a circumstance and tell exactly why it happened. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure that out, don't we? You look at other people's circumstances and you go, well, I wonder why this is happening to them. I wonder why they're dealing with this. I wonder how they became a drug addict or I wonder how they became this or that. And we try and figure out the why they got into that spot. Can I tell you, you and I will never be able to tell conclusively why other people are suffering the way they are. You and I will never be able to answer that question conclusively, even in my own life. It's usually a mix of things. The suffering in my life isn't always real cut and dry. 
But what I can always be sure of is that even though I can't tell why suffering is happening, in every circumstance where suffering is happening, there is the potential for God's glory and there is the potential for God's redemption to be put on display. And so it behooves me as a disciple of Jesus to look at every circumstance and spend zero time trying to figure out why people are in the circumstance they're in because I can't know that. And instead to spend all my time asking the Lord to direct me toward the way in which he will redeem that particular situation. Does that make sense? Because he is a redeemer. Because he is a reconciler. Because he is a restorer. Because he is always seeking his own glory. What, what I should preoccupy myself with is looking at a circumstance when I see a man born blind from birth on the side of the road. Instead of saying why is he like this. Going what can God do here. And the same thing is true in our lives. The same thing is true in our lives. We can never be absolutely positive about any possible cause of suffering, but the potential for, for redemption is always absolute. The potential for redemption is always absolute. My job is not to evaluate the sin of others, but to listen for how God might redeem it. And I have to, I absolutely have to value the glory of God more than my own freedom from pain. I have to value the glory of God more than my own freedom from pain or else I'm gonna be constantly confounded. In the economy of the kingdom, his glory is what matters most. These men, these disciples are blinded by their judgmentalism. They're blinded by this theological technicality and they miss out for the potential glory of God. Jesus says it was not that this man uh, sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There he reaffirms what he'd said in John 8. I'm the light of the world. There's a, there's a time frame here. We gotta get working. We have time to be speculating about this. Let's do the works of God rather than speculating about why this man's in the circumstance he's in. It says, having said this, verse six, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. I love that last phrase. He went and washed and came back seeing. What? It's awesome, right? A man who was born blind from birth, Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud. By the way, gross, right? But if you're looking... Um, if you're looking for a way to justify or excuse your own habit of spitting, you can tell your mom, look, Jesus did it, right? He spit, so it's fine for me too. Um, Jesus spits on the ground, he makes mud, he packs it into the man's blind eyes and says, go and wash. He sends him. Now, how many times in the Gospel of John have we talked about Jesus' sentness, right? Sentness. Now here, Jesus sends someone else to a pool that by its very name means sent. He sends the man to wipe the mud away, but it says he goes and washes and he comes back seeing. The implication, and this will be important later, the implication is that he did not see Jesus prior to returning, right? He washes it away and is given his sight and comes back with vision that he didn't have before. But I love the fact that Jesus puts this mud. Why, why does he do it this way? There's a couple of, uh, there's a couple of theories on why Jesus, because Jesus could have just said, hey, buddy, now you can see. Poof, and it would have been done, right? He could have just said, receive your sight, and the man would have had his sight. Why does Jesus do it this way? Well, there's a couple of theories that I think are worth evaluating. The first one is that there was an oral Jewish tradition that said, you know, you're not even allowed to make mud because that would be work on the Sabbath. Making mud is work on the Sabbath, so don't make mud. And they even went one step further and they said, don't spit on the Sabbath because your saliva might roll downhill and make mud accidentally. And that would be work, right? 
Your spit could actually work against you and cause you to violate the Sabbath. If you spit on a hill and it rolls down and mud is made, you're in violation. I think Jesus chooses in this case not just to heal him with a word, but to heal him with mud because he's conducting an eyesight exam, right? He's conducting a vision test, not for the man who's blind, but for everybody else in the crowd. Jesus is essentially putting up the chart with the A and the E and the side where he's W or whatever it is they try and trick us with, right? He's putting up a vision test. Why? By grabbing this mud and breaking their oral tradition. He's breaking their oral tradition. He's trying to gauge what they see when he does this. He's conducting a vision test. He makes mud. Not only that, I think it's worth noting that you and I, Genesis tells us we're created from the dust. That God created us from the dust and he breathed life into our nostrils. I love the fact that Jesus restores the man's vision using the very substance from which the man was created originally. That he uses dust to do that. The last thing I would say with regard to why he does it this way is that God is a God of process. He's a God that uses means to accomplish his ends, right? I, I, uh, in our teaching meeting this week, somebody said, hey, look, I'll admit, I want God to work in my life. I want God to work in my life, but I don't want to have mud in my eyes, Right? Have you ever felt like that? God, I want you to heal me. God, I want you to remove my blindness. God, I want you to do a powerful work in my life, but I don't want to have to walk to a pool. I don't have to wash. I definitely don't want to have anybody spit in my face, right? I think sometimes we want God to work the way we want him to work, and I think God puts mud in the man's eyes to show I got my own methods and my own means. There are times where God is going to work in our life, but he's not going to do it in the way that we have prescribed or the way that we would choose. He's not even necessarily going to do it in the easiest way. Or the simplest way. But that sometimes the way that God chooses to bring restoration is through a process that's different than what we would have requested. Jesus makes mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. He sends the man to Salome. The man obeyed and he came back seeing. And immediately following that, the neighbors aren't sure what's going on. It says in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. I lo- uh, this is one of those scenes that would be really good on film, right? Now all of a sudden the guy can see and his neighbors are like, you know what this looks like? It looks like the blind, you know the guy up the street, that guy, what's his name? His name, uh, you know, Darren, and he's blind. And it, isn't this him? He used to wear khaki pants. This guy's wearing khaki pants. That's him, right? And they're like, no, it, he's wearing the same pants, but it's not exactly the same guy. There's all this argument. Meanwhile, he's literally standing among them while they're speculating about who he is. And he's going, no, honestly, it's me, right? Hey, hey, it's me, right? It's me. It's Scott. You're looking at him, right? And they don't get it. They don't see him in their midst, probably because they hadn't paid close enough attention to him up until that point. But he keeps saying, I am the man. Verse 10, so they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, by the way, throughout this text, we see this man's responses are simple and brilliant in their simplicity. He responds in verse 11, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. He doesn't know because he hasn't seen Jesus. Note here in this text that the man never demonstrates faith in Jesus. He never asks Jesus for a miracle. Jesus gives him this by his own act, right? Jesus, in this particular case, creates this miraculous action both to demonstrate what he said about being light, but also to stir faith in the man. Sometimes miracles follow faith, and sometimes miracles precede faith. Does that make sense? 
The guy says, I don't know. I don't know what he, what, where he is, and mostly because he's never seen the guy. He says, where is he? He says, I do not know. So his neighbors, verse 13, brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. As has happened many times in our study of the Gospel of John, Jesus is a dividing point for people. But they, the neighbors bring this man before the Pharisees and they go, hey, what, what's going on with this guy? The Pharisees say, how did this happen? Here's the second kind of blindness we see that I want to illustrate for you in the text today. The second kind of blindness is a blindness by tradition. A blindness by tradition that blinds them to the miraculous. You see, these Pharisees are so caught up in their oral traditions, they're so caught up in the making of this mud that they miss the fact that there's a man who formerly could not see that now can. There is no celebration, there's no high fives, there's, no, there's not even any wonder and awe. They are enraptured by the idea that this man made mud on the Sabbath. How did he do it? Why did he do it? Now let's just stop for a second and recognize that in our own lives, sometimes we're blinded by judgmentalism. We're blinded by looking at why things have happened to other people instead of recognizing how God can redeem it. But there are other times in our lives that the blind spot for us, the thing that blinds us, is our own tradition. It's our religion, right? It's that we wanna, we wanna sort of fall into these same motions. We get into these patterns and these routines and they blind us to what God may actually be doing in front of us. When our traditions become our God, we become blinded to who God actually is. And we can become so preoccupied with religion that we miss God himself. Jesus says, quoting in Isaiah, in Matthew 15, verse 8 and 9, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We can get wrapped up sort of in, in expressing and putting into practice our own ideas so much so that we miss the heart of God, that we miss the presence of God in our community. These Pharisees, because they're so upset about the violation of their tradition, they miss the miraculous in front of them. Have you ever been blinded by tradition? Have you ever been blinded by your own religion to what God may actually be doing? Have you ever even stopped to think that you might be blinded by that? I will tell you, if you'd ask these Pharisees, oh, do you think you're blinded by your religion? They would say, absolutely not. We're committed to our faith, right? Sometimes we can be blinded by religion and we don't even know it. And that's really the greatest threat. That's the greatest fear are the places where we're blind and we don't see it. Here, these Pharisees are blinded by their tradition. They're blind to the miraculous. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 18. It says, but what comes out of the mouth, excuse me, I'm in Matthew, sorry, go back to John chapter 9, verse 18, says this, the Jews, uh, actually, let me, let me back up just a little bit from, from 16 on, it says, so some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs, and there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, uh, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. 
But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself, right? They try and deflect it back on their son. And John gives us a little insight in 22. He says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. When it says put out of the synagogue, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't be allowed to come to that building. It means that they would be cast out of the Jewish community. That they would be cast out of the Jewish community, unable to worship or to fellowship or to buy food from their faithful Jewish friends. Like to be put out. And so they were blinded by their fear. The parents here were blinded by their fear. This is the third kind of blindness we see in the text. Blinded by their fear and blinded to joy. Blinded by fear and blinded to joy. Why? Because they were worried about what their fellow man would think. They were worried about what other people would say. They were worried about being cast out or being held at arm's length by the religious leaders. How often in our lives are we blinded by fear and blind to the joy? It's so sad that the parents of this man don't have the opportunity to pick him up and hug him. That they don't have the opportunity for him to see their faces. That they don't have the opportunity to celebrate that their son who's been blind his entire life can now see a sunset and a sunrise and a delicious meal and everything else. They don't have the opportunity to celebrate this and joy. Why? Because they're blinded by their own fear of being put out, of being cast aside by other human beings. I'll tell you, there are a lot of times in our own lives where our fear of what other people will think precludes us from experiencing what God has for us. I think even in a, even in a worship service like this in my own life, there are times where the spirit of God moves in me in a profound way and I feel compelled to want to put my hands up in the air or I feel compelled to want to kneel down on the ground or I feel compelled to want to express myself in truth and then that truth in some ways is suppressed. Have you ever felt this? And it's not suppressed by the spirit of God. It's suppressed by the spirit spirit of the room because I'm worried about what you might think about me I'm worried you might think it's weird if I put my hands in the air if I kneel down and nobody else is kneeling down if I choose to sing or not to sing if I open my eyes or I close my eyes and this is just one example of the places in which we miss the prompting of the spirit of God because we're so worried about the opinions of others that's why Jesus will very clearly say why are you worried about those who can kill the body but can't touch the soul don't fear man How much joy would there be in our lives if we stopped being worried about what other people thought about us and instead we concerned ourselves with what God was doing in front of us? His parents are blinded by fear and they're blinded to joy. Let's keep reading. We'll pick it up in 23. uh, It says, they said, ask him, he is of age. So verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Okay, full stop. Let's wait for a second here because this next kind of blindness is a big deal. This next kind of blindness is a blindedness that happens because of their belief and it blinds them to blasphemy. And you might not have noticed it, but you might not be noticing it in your own life. And that's the concern. What they say here in these two phrases is deadly serious. What they say is, first, give glory to God, which was a common exclamation. It was a common thing for them to say, and it's actually a great thing that we should be saying to one another. Give glory to God. That's what we were built for. We should constantly be encouraging one another to give glory to God, because that is why we were created. But they follow, and they equate giving glory to God with confessing that the Lord Jesus is full of sin, and that's where the blasphemy happens. Because Jesus is not a sinner, the Son of God is not full of sin, the Son of God is pure and perfect, the one who comes from God. And so the moment that the religious leaders are saying, the way for you to give glory to God is by denying that Jesus is perfect, we got a huge problem. 
And I bring that out and I point it out to you because I think that there again are times in our lives where we fall into real danger of making our agenda synonymous with glorifying God. And we have to be really careful. These people believe that Jesus is a sinner and so in order to further emphasize their belief and their position, they make their belief and their position the same thing as glorifying God and you and I want to go really slow before we do that in our lives. If it doesn't line up with the scriptures themselves and the things that God has declared, we want to be very careful that in our lives, our whims and our positions and our beliefs and our thinking doesn't become one and the same with what brings glory to God. Does that make sense? We want to be aligned with what the scripture has revealed. Here we see them blinded by their beliefs and blind to their own blasphemy. But the man sees a simple truth. Look at 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I love the simplicity of that, right? It's beautiful. They're like, tell us he's a sinner. Glorify God and tell us he's a sinner. He's like, to be honest, I can't speak to that. I haven't even seen this dude. Uh, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. Here's what I know. I was blind this morning and now I'm not. So can we just talk about that for a second, right? What I do know is that I was blind and now I see. They said to him in verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Remember, they're preoccupied with the violation of their tradition. They want to know about this mud making. What did he, how did he do that? What did he, well, tell us about the work he did. What did he do? How did he open your eyes? 27, he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That's a good moment, right? This is a good, oh, I see what's going on here. You want to follow Jesus with me. Come on, let's go, right? I'll tell you about him. You can follow him with me. Why do you keep asking me? Do you want to be his disciples also? Well, that pushes them over the edge, right? That's more than they can take. 28, they reviled him. I want you to see their anger here. They're angry because of what he's, what he's said. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In this case, we see these people blinded by their own status and blinded to their personal need. Blinded by their status. Why? What are they claiming? They go, we don't know about this Jesus. We don't want to be his disciples. We'll tell you whose disciples we are. We're disciples of Moses, and that's a big deal. Because Moses was a big deal. God spoke to him. We know God spoke to him. And we're his disciples. We're disciples of the one that God spoke to, right? And literally this man is looking at them and saying, you're disciples of one that God spoke to, and yet here I am telling you, God spoke to me, right? A few minutes ago, he looked at me, and he put mud on my eyes, and he told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. You want to revere somebody God spoke to? I mean, I'm standing right here. He spoke to me. The people, these Pharisees are missing the fact that God is in their midst speaking to them. That he's been speaking to them. All they can do is look back to who he's spoken to in the past. And because they're so preoccupied with where God has spoken in the past, they miss the opportunity to open their eyes and ears to where he's speaking in the present. They're blinded by their own status as the disciples of Moses. And they're blinded to their personal need. They miss out on the fact that they themselves are blinded. I wonder if there are some of you here this morning who are blinded and you don't even know it. 
that you're so preoccupied with what you know or where you've been or what you've done, your religious activities, right? Your spiritual growth or whatever you want to call it, that you've, you've become blinded by your own status to the fact that you have an ongoing personal need, the presence of the Savior. They are quick to claim we're not disciples of Moses, or we're not disciples of Jesus, we're disciples of Moses, blinded by their status, blinded to their personal need. And then in 34, in their anger, they're blinded by their anger in 34 and blinded to understanding. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us, they're essentially saying, you're blind because you sinned in utero, right? You sinned before you were born. You were born in utter sin and you're gonna speak to us? No, 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 what's happening here? This is their anger. Have you ever been angry about something, so angry that it blinded you to what was actually going on? They have a man standing in front of them that's testifying to the truth of the Son of God and they can't see him and hear him because they're so mad. Are there places in your life where your anger or your frustration or maybe your perceived insult, maybe somebody has made you feel insulted and because they've made you feel insulted, then your heart closes up, your eyes glaze over? They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. When they cast him out, what we're talking about here is the very thing his parents were afraid of. They were afraid of being cast out of the synagogue. This isn't just saying that they sent him away from their circle or from their conversation. They cast him out from fellowship. They cast him out from the Jewish community. He's rejected by them. They reject him from the temple. But look at what happens in 35. I love this verse. Jesus heard that they had cast him out And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? I love the fact that Jesus hears that the man has been cast out by religious leaders, right? These are supposedly the servants of God. The servants of God have cast you out. And so God comes to find you and says, well, you're not really as cast out as they'd like to think, right? How cool is that? That Jesus hears he's been cast out by religious leaders and he goes, yeah, those people who think they're serving me are actually not acting on my behalf at all. And he goes to find him. I love that Jesus goes to find him. That Jesus takes the initiative here to go to find him. Remember, the man has never seen Jesus. Jesus goes and finds this outcast who can see. It's quite a roller coaster of a day, isn't it? He's blind in the morning, now he has vision, and now he's rejected from his entire community. That's quite an up and down. Jesus finds him and says this, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a, that's a different question than can you see. We know he can see. Jesus has made it so that he can see. Notice here that Jesus recenters him on what's really important. What's really important is not whether or not he can see or not see. What's really important is does he believe in Jesus? So Jesus recenters him on the important question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And here he uses that prophetic title for Christ, for the Messiah, Son of Man. Do you believe? I love the man's response. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's willing. He goes, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to believe in him if I, if I knew who he was. Jesus says, verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I love the fact that this man can see the Savior because of the Savior. Think about that for a second. Why is it that this man can see Jesus He can only see Jesus because of Jesus. And you know what? The same thing is true for each and every one of us. Our ability to see the risen Son of God is not a result of our own effort. It's not a result of our Bible knowledge. It's not a result of our church attendance or our self-perceived holiness and righteousness. It's not all of our struggling and striving. Our ability to see Jesus is a direct result of the power and work of Jesus. We see him because of him. 
Jesus says, the one who's been talking to you, I, I, am, I am the son of man. You have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. I love this response, 38. The man said, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe, as simple as that. There's a really cool progression in this text. If you look at it, you'll see in verse 11, the man refers to Jesus as a man. In verse 11, he says, well, the man put mud on my eyes. This man, Jesus. In verse 17, under the, uh, under the scrutiny of the Pharisees, he refers to Jesus as a prophet. And that's, that's a good little jump from man to prophet. Later, we get to 33, and he refers to Jesus as one sent by God. An ambassador of God. So from man to prophet to ambassador of God. And then here finally in 38, we see him refer to Jesus as master. Lord. I I like that progression. He says, Lord, I believe. I believe. It's beautiful, isn't it? And it says he believes and and he worships. I don't know what that worship looks like. I don't know if that's the man, again, down on his knees. I don't know if he's singing a song. I don't know if it's celebration. Maybe it's he pulls a worship flag out of his pocket. I'm not sure how it works, right? (laughs) Something cool. He worships there in 38. And then listen to the way this finishes. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. That's heavy. Jesus says, For judgment. And you might go, Well, I thought he said earlier that he doesn't judge anybody. You know, like, what's, what's this all about? What's, what's this judgment? What he's saying is, He came into the world for our judgment. And I don't, I don't mean his conviction of us, I mean our ability to assess. The word judgment means for us to be able to assess between right and wrong, to pass judgment on what is true and false. Jesus here says, I've come into the world for the sake of judgment. He's not talking about his judgment of us. He's saying, I came into the world that you would be able to judge rightly. That you would have your eyes open, that you'd be able to see the difference between light and dark, between enslavement and liberty, between death and life. I have come into the world that you would be able to judge. That those who see would recognize that they're blind. Those who think they see would recognize that they're blind and those who are blind would have their sight. And the Pharisees overhear this and here's our last kind of blindness. The Pharisees overhear it in verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? You hear their pride? They're blinded by their pride. They're blinded by their pride and they're blinded to the truth. They say, hey, we heard that. We're standing right here. Did you just call us blind? Is that what you just did? You know, we're fair. I don't know if you know this, but we're kind of a big deal. Like people name their kids after us, right? Did you just call us blind? Is that what you just did? And Jesus looks at them and I, I sort of imagine him with a little bit of a tear in his eye here and he says this in 41. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. What's he saying? He said, if you could own the fact that you're blind, you wouldn't be blind anymore. But the fact that you insist on your own clarity of sight proves that you can't see anything at all. If you could admit that you were blind, that you were in need. I mean, it's like Alcoholics Anonymous says, right? The first step towards recovery is admitting you have a problem. If you could admit that you were blind, then vision could be yours, sight could be yours. But as long as you insist that you can see, you remain in darkness. You know, at the end of the day, it won't, be our, it won't be our weakness or our brokenness or our ignorance or even our wickedness that will prevent us from being sons and daughters of God. Because our brokenness and our ignorance and our weakness and our unrighteousness, those things are things that Jesus heals by his grace. It won't be those things that precludes us from being sons and, God, sons and daughters of God. Not our, not our weakness or our brokenness or our sin. The things that will preclude, preclude us from being sons and daughters of God is our supposed holiness and our supposed 
knowledge and our supposed wholeness and our supposed wellness and our supposed righteousness, the more we claim to saying I see and I know and I do and I am, the more we claim in our pride, the more our vision is obscured. And the moment we go, no, I'm, I'm broken and weak and flawed and frail and stupid sometimes is the moment that the power of God is brought to bear in our lives. Jesus said, if you'd admit that you, hadn't, that you couldn't see, there would be no more blindness. But the fact that you cling to sight, that you cling to that claim, means that you remain blind. I wonder this morning, church, if there are blind spots in your life, places where you're blinded by fear and judgmentalism and your status and your pride, places where you're blind to the truth of who God is and what he wants for us. I wonder if you would open your eyes to the truth that you need his healing touch. Would you pray with me? God, we pray that you would stir in us an honesty, a transparency to confess our weakness and our brokenness and our frailty that we wouldn't be so quick to say, who are you calling blind? But instead we would say, yes, will you heal us? The great tragedy of John chapter nine is that there's a whole host of people who finish the chapter in the darkness and only one we hear of who's in the light. Help us to be people who step towards you in our weakness that you would heal us. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.